In this episode, I'm joined by David D. Friedman, who is an American economist, legal scholar, and anarcho-capitalist theorist. In this episode, we discuss his book, The Machinery of Freedom, alongside discussions on libertarianism, anarcho-capitalism, cooperation, law, science fiction, and more. I'd like to say a big thank you to all my paid patrons and subscribers for making all of this work possible. And if you would like to support Omedics and also gain access to some exclusive patron-only content, then please find links in the description below, because it's very much appreciated and it keeps the show going indefinitely. Enjoy. David Freeman, thanks very much for joining us on Hermitics podcast. Uh, we are going to be discussing your book, uh, The Machinery of Freedom, uh, Guide to a Radical Capitalism, which is on its third edition, uh, published by Open Court Publishing, uh, and originally published in 1973. Second edition was Open Court. The third edition I self-published. Ah, okay, okay. We couldn't reach terms that we were happy with with Open Court. Okay, okay. I would, I would ask you, you know, introduce yourself, tell us a little about yourself, but I think you're you're quite well known in, in uh, libertarian circles and economic circles now, right? I would say libertarian circles, law and economic circles. I'm not sure in economic circles more generally. Okay, okay. And you, I guess this this would be the important thing to emphasize, you identify as an, an anarcho-capitalist. Correct. Is, is that, there... is, that is to say, I think that a stateless private property society in some circumstances would function and that where it functioned is likely to be better than any alternative. I don't think it is going to be stable in all possible environments. Okay. Okay. And does that differ in definition to libertarianism? Yes. I am also a libertarian, uh, but one could in principle be a non-libertarian anarcho-capitalist and one could certainly be a libertarian non-anarchist. There are lots of libertarian minarchists. Uh, so that I would just say that libertarian, me, the exact meaning is going to vary from person to person. But roughly speaking, it means that you want a society where individuals are free, in a sense, we could go into great details on, but aren't going to bother with, uh, mm -hmm. that they can run their own lives, generally private property, ownership of what you produce, that sort of stuff. Uh, one might believe that uh, the best such society would have a government. One might say it's a pity that uh, government is going to violate individual rights, but there are no better alternatives because we need some in violation of individual rights in order to keep some bad things from happening, such as our being conquered by another government, uh, in which case one would then be a libertarian minarchist. And one might also think that the best possible society would be a stateless society, but not believe that the not believe either that individuals had rights or that uh, maximizing rights was what you wanted the society to do there you you could certainly imagine an anarchist uh, who said uh, there are no rights what I care about is happiness but I think people will be happier in a society without the government that would be a utilitarian rather than a libertarian one of the ambiguities I should say in the, in the term libertarian is that it the definition that I gave for libertarian was in terms of what sort of society you want. But some people would define libertarian in terms of their moral beliefs, so that you might have somebody who said it is always wrong to violate rights. Uh, and but you might also have somebody who said, I don't believe in any of these rights that, uh, you know, uh, 
uh, Bentham has described it, writes as, as nonsense on stilts, if I remember. Uh, but he might still say in a society where individuals are free to run their own lives will be a better society by whatever terms I care about, which could be you know, technological progress, it could be total utility, it could be a whole bunch of different things. So I don't think that, I, I think that there, that anarchy and libertarianism fit together fairly well, but I don't think that they're synonyms. Uh, okay, okay. Do you personally think that you can be a libertarian then without being, uh, really being an anarchist? Yes, sure. Okay. Of course. Okay. All you have to do is Take somebody who believes the same things I believe, except that his conclusion is that a completely stateless society will be unstable, that it will break down into something much less attractive, uh, which is certainly possible. I spend, uh, I think, a chapter in the third edition and maybe a chapter in the first edition uh, discussing ways in which it might not work. What are the circumstances in which it might be unstable? Uh, so I, I think one could certainly be a libertarian. Now, it's a little tricky. If you're a libertarian in the moral sense, you would probably have to say that when the government collects taxes, it's violating rights. You might even say it's legitimate to hide your money from the government when it's collecting taxes. But nonetheless, say, I, I hope the government does collect taxes because if it doesn't, even worse things will happen. Mm -hmm. All right. That's not an indefensible uh, position. Uh, but if you're a libertarian in the sense that you want to maximize liberty, then you could say, well, the maximum of liberty is a minarchy, not an anarchy. And that's something reasonable people can disagree about. Okay. Okay. I mean, I already, I already have a question there on property rights and human rights, this notion of rights. Uh, yeah. But I'd like to get the hermetics question out at the yeah. beginning here. So you can place three thinkers, living or dead, into a room, listening on mm -hmm. the conversation. Who do you pick? And this is interesting, because usually I speak to you know, about a certain philosopher, so they'll bring in people. I don't think I have a good answer to that question. There are a number of people I'd be interested mm -hmm. to hear. Uh, I'd be interested to hear G.K. Chesterton, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, but I'm not sure who you put him with. Uh, I guess maybe George Orwell. That mm -hmm. would be interesting, actually, because uh, they were contemporaries. That is, they overlapped. Uh and then who do you want as the third person in that conversation? It'd be interesting to have my father if he was still around. Uh, that would that would be fairly interesting. There's Orwell is certainly an interesting. Chesterton and Orwell are two people who I think very highly of. They're both mm -hmm. very interesting essayists. Uh, Chesterton's the better writer of the two, but but uh, but he was he was an extraordinarily good essayist. But uh, and Orwell, of course. Part of the problem is Orwell when, because I think Orwell's views change over time. Uh, but that would be interesting. I think I think my father, Orwell, and Chesterton would be a nice combination. But there are probably other good combinations that I haven't thought of yet. Okay, okay. Uh, with respect to Chesterton, are you are you a religious man? Nope. I'm okay. an atheist. So but I, yeah, but, your... I'm an atheist, but I do not think that religious people are crazy. Uh, <laughs> I, they have a different view of the world. And... I am less certain that I can justify my view of the world than many people are. So therefore, and there are a fair number of religious people I have high opinions of, such as Chesterton or Tolkien would be another example. So what's uh, the what's the draw for you for, for Chesterton? Huh. That's interesting. Uh, partly he just writes very well. Mm -hmm. Partly he has a vision of the world which happens to include religion, but which is also sort of seeing the world as a very beautiful and exciting place. So that if you look, you can see that maybe both in his poetry and in his essays, the, the idea 
somehow of, you know, that the proper reaction to why isn't life better is open your eyes. Uh, but, but he's, he's an original thinker. He is somebody who puts things in odd ways and thinks up uh, interesting new ideas from a weird perspective. He's a libertarian. Mm -hmm. Uh, he's a crazy libertarian, like lots of us, uh, but he's, but his basic instincts are clearly libertarian instincts. Uh, so I guess a bunch of reasons like that. Mm -hmm. And part of what I like about Orwell is that he is a socialist who is perfectly willing to see that there are problems with his own position. Uh, that I think he overestimates the problems with the alternative position. That one of the more interesting things in Orwell is a joint review of The Road to Serfdom and a book by a left-wing British MP called Connie Ziliakis, uh, in which Orwell is basically saying, uh, Professor Ziliakis argues uh, quite persuasively that uh, laissez-faire capitalism must lead to bread lines, massive inequality, unemployment, all sorts of horrible things, and the only alternative is socialism. Professor Hayek argues quite persuasively that socialism must lead to totalitarianism, slavery, et cetera, et cetera, and the only alternative is laissez-faire capitalism. It is a sobering thought that they may both be right. Mm -hmm. That's not an exact quote, but that's, and that, that's something that very few people are willing to think about. Mm -hmm. The possibility there might not be a good solution that there is. I actually taught a course one year at Chicago undergraduate course, uh, which I think I titled Solution Unsatisfactory. Mm -hmm. And the point of the course was to take various social issues, various issues, where for a week at least, I was willing to argue there are only two solutions and neither of them works. Because I think people are too inclined to say, if there are only two solutions, once we've eliminated one of them, we're finished. Mm -hmm. uh, and the title, I should say, is from a Heinlein story. There is a Heinlein short story called Solution Unsatisfactory. And I think part of the point of the story is that the central figure makes the correct decision at each step. Mm -hmm. And you end up with what's going to be a catastrophic uh, world war with a not they don't have atomic weapons, but they've got radioactive dust, which is sort of equally, equally destructive in it. Uh, and that I thought was just a neat concept, being willing to, to write a story in which there really was no way out. Yeah, the, the admittance that even if you every step of the way is perfectly correct in terms of everyone's opinions, you still end up in this dead end. Not I mean, just in terms of everyone, in, in, in terms of the reader's opinion. That is to say that, 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 that the implication, at least, is that there, there was no way out. That given this, given the situation, the technology, and of course, there's a probably better known short story by somebody else, which is the same thing on a much smaller scale called the Cold Equations, mm -hmm. uh, and that's one, if I remember correctly, where somebody has stowed away on a spaceship, and the constraints are such that there is no way of getting the spaceship uh, to its destination with her still on board. That there's, I don't remember where the limit is, oxygen or fuel or something, but it's basically set up so that basically you have this sort of innocent, naive person who, who, who stowed away on the spaceship before it took off, not understanding any of this. And the only answer is going to be to push her out the airlock. <laughs> uh, and I think that if I remember correctly, I think somebody did a, I was told that someone had done a movie or some version of it in which they, which somehow she gets saved. But my memory of the short story is that she doesn't.
Okay. Okay. So is that is that sort of the important thing I think then it seems for libertarianism or, or for anarcho capitalism is that with socialism or with totalitarianism or with fascism you end up running down a one way street and as you know, you read history, people are generally very reluctant to turn around or admit we need to go back or we need to change the path we're on. Whereas anarcho capitalism is is an open, personally subjective uh should we say but it's not really open because it does not include the option of having a government. Open in open in the sense of what one can do, though. You're, the the the, the yeah. subject isn't constrained. But 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 you, you you can't enslave people. You can't murder the guy you hate. There there are always there are always constraints in any society. Yeah. Okay. So it's the it's the 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 the, the best version of constraints. I think so. But okay. The the. You were asking before about the connection between uh, anarchy and libertarianism, mm-hmm. and there's I, I'm in the process of writing a book or possibly several books in which I'm taking 15 years of blog posts and using them for the ideas that I came up with over that by probably 16 years uh, over those and writing chapters, putting together various of those ideas. And one of the ones, one of the things I actually came across at some point was a piece by a libertarian minarchist who is attacking anarchy and specifically responding to me. And he says, look, uh, in your anarchist society, there is no guarantee that the private courts will follow libertarian law. There's no guarantee that He's correct, of course. There is no guarantee of that. His mistake is thinking that's an argument for minarchy because it's equally true in minarchy, that that if you set up a libertarian minarchy, if the voters want to make uh, heroin illegal, the government will find some excuse to make heroin illegal. There There is no way of guaranteeing the outcome. But the difference, I argue, is that in anarchy, there is a reason to expect the courts to produce libertarian law. And in, in all of the alternatives, there isn't. And the basic argument, which I sketched in machinery and in the first edition, I went through in more detail in the third edition, is that the minarchist system, you have a, a market for legal rules, mm-hmm. that individuals are customers of private firms that uh, protect their rights and arrange to settle their conflicts, that those private firms are customers of private courts, arbitration agencies, uh, which, uh, you know, since if customers of two different private rights enforcement agencies get into a conflict, uh, you need some way of settling it without shooting each other. And the way you settle it is that they're rights enforcement agencies have agreed in advance on an arbitration agency whose verdicts they will accept. That's the mechanism that I sketched in the book. And then the question is, what kind of laws will it pay the arbitration agencies to have? Because they're in effect creating the legal system. And the answer is that for reasons similar, though not identical to the ordinary reasons on an ordinary market, they are going to be have an incentive to reduce those laws that maximize the individual welfare of the customers, just for the same sorts of reasons that automobile companies have an incentive to build good cars, to build cars that have the characteristics of the kind that people want to drive. Uh, If that's right, since libertarians believe that libertarianism works, libertarians believe that the benefit to you of violating my rights is almost never greater than the cost to me, 
Mm-hmm. It therefore follows that a right respecting set of legal rules will maximize uh, individual uh, welfare in that in, in the ordinary economist sort of revealed preference kind of way. Consequently, the tendency in the market for law is going to be to generate libertarian law. So in that sense, there is a connection in, in both directions, not only that uh, the anarchist system will give you roughly what libertarians want, but it won't give you some of the things non-libertarians want, which is a reason why they might not want to be in favor of it. So in that sense, there really is a connection, some connection between anarchy and, and, and libertarianism. In the sense then that libertarianism is that um, increasement of personal welfare and in what way? No, libertarianism is the belief in in, in, in respecting individual rights, mm-hmm. but libertarians mostly believe that that will increase individual welfare. Okay, so yeah, I was going to say in what if sense? If it doesn't increase individual welfare, then the market for law isn't going to give it to you. On average, yeah. What's to stop the market from law, like from not from giving you something which doesn't increase your welfare? What I'm saying is the fact the fact that the that that the private arbitration agencies won't find any customers. Okay. The fact that. And if the if the rights enforcement agency chooses a arbitration agency that doesn't aim at maximizing welfare law, it won't have any customers. I'm exaggerating. It's never it's never a knife edge decision. But but in the in the in theory, the way democracy works is that the politicians have to do good things or we'll vote them out. Hmm. But the reasons why that isn't workable, one of the reasons is that first voters have no good way of figuring out whether politicians are doing good things. Mm -hmm. We don't get to compare the, uh, what happened in the US with Trump elected with what would have happened if his uh, rival had been elected. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, we do get to compare a Toyota to a Honda. Mm -hmm. Uh, We may have owned both. We know other people, we can test drive them and so forth. Uh, and we get to compare not quite as smoothly uh, what kind of a job uh, my uh, auto insurance company does versus your auto insurance company. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, well, in the system that I'm describing, you do get to compare how well your rights are protected versus how well somebody else's rights with a different different agency are, are protected. You do get to compare whether when he got into a legal dispute, it cost him a fortune in lawyers and he got a lousy result, whereas when you did, you things went well or vice versa. So that you are not perfectly, but in a better position to uh, judge as an individual consumer what you're getting. And given that, there will be more of a tendency for the system to give those legal rules that maximize welfare. That's okay. So it's not inherent. Okay. It's not inherent. But it's not perfect. It's the, there is no guarantee that your that your anarchist system won't have some non non libertarian rules. If if enough if enough of the customers believe that taking heroin is an evil act, uh, mm-hmm. then it'll turn out that the market for law will generate laws against heroin. I see. I see. If they so believe it enough, so they're willing to pay for it. If they believe it enough, so that they are willing to patronize a rights enforcement agency which goes out of its way to, to to bargain with other rights enforcement agencies to agree on courts that will enforce laws against heroin. 
And the cost of that is the people who want to use heroin are willing to uh, pay more for an agency that, 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 that doesn't use such courts. Mm-hmm. So there's going to be a market conflict uh, in, 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 in what people are willing to pay. But if it's really the case that the value to people of having, court, having laws against heroin is much larger than the value to the people of not having those laws, then you'll get them. But but could that work on a on a nation on a nationwide scale? You know, in what sense could you be within a libertarian society if a certain people then enacted these laws which overtook everyone else's rights? Even it's if not they... somebody. Nobody gets to enact a law that overtakes everybody's rights. Mm-hmm. Everyone is the customer of a rights enforcement agency. Mm-hmm. It might turn out that in the market equilibrium. There aren't any rights enforcement agencies which sell the product be under a legal system in which heroin is legal. Mm -hmm. That's a possible outcome. Uh, Just as I'm pretty sure there won't be any that sell the product be under a uh, legal system where you can kill anybody you want to. Mm -hmm. Because the value to people who don't want to be killed is so much larger than the value to people who want to kill them that yeah. uh, you won't, the market is not going to produce that. Just just like we don't get cars that weigh 5,000 pounds, uh, get one mile per gallon and only go five miles an hour, right? Mm-hmm. Perfectly legal to make such cars, but there's no market for them. Okay, okay. So what's out there? I mean, I guess people would be asking who aren't, you know, too aware of anarcho-capitalism is, what happens then when someone does get murdered? I mean, I'm sure this is a basic question. Which when, you... some, when, when somebody does get murdered, he is the customer of a rights enforcement agency. Mm-hmm. He has, if, he, if he's not the customer of a rights enforcement agency, maybe nothing happens. You don't know. But I'm expecting essentially everybody to be customers of such agencies. Mm-hmm. Uh, his rights enforcement agency investigates the murder. They conclude that you are the murderer. Mr. Mm-hmm. Ellis uh, killed the poor victim. Uh so they go to your rights enforcement agency and they say, we believe Mr. Ellis is, is guilty. Uh, let's uh, have a trial. And if and, and you have agreed, the trial will be run by the arbitration agency that we agreed 15 years ago that we would use to settle disputes between our two agencies. Mm-hmm. And uh, if the trial finds him guilty, you agree that you won't stop us from punishing him in some way. And what the punishment is, is going to be one of the things that's part of the arbitration agency's rules. So it might be, depending on the society, it might be they hang you. Mm-hmm. It might be that you have to pay Wehrgeld, that you have to pay $300,000 to the heirs of the person who you killed. Uh, that's going to be a market outcome. It's, okay. it's, you know, it's, it's as if somebody said, suppose you have a monarchy or a democracy, what will the laws be? I don't know. Right. You can describe the mechanism for making the laws, but you can have them. You had in England for a very long time a democracy in which a, a, a large number of uh, acts were, were, were capital crimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you okay. you had you could easily enough have a system in which uh, most acts were punished by fines. Mm-hmm. Uh, our whole tort system, in effect, is a system of fines payable to the victim. OK, OK. Perhaps if we use a less serious example other than murder say for instance yep. in the uk you you're born into that state system of laws right Correctly. you steal something you are you you understand the consequences within that system of laws and you're born within it and you've no way out of it in this sense that we're talking about with these arbitration agencies what if someone just didn't accept that entire thing and they were just outside of them but then they broke the law within someone else's 
In that right. case, the, the the victim's agency would take actions against them. Okay. And it at that point, though, depending what, on depending on the point, how are you depending on what the society is like, that could mean anything from hunting them down and killing <laughs> them uh, to saying we we want to have the reputation of being reasonable people. We want to make sure that when this happens, the guy doesn't feel he should 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 kill our people in, in defense. So we will give him a trial, uh, and if he's convicted, we'll we'll punish him. That is that is you don't have the option of going around killing people and having nothing happen. Uh, but, but, the, but, the, but basically a lot of the reason why everybody's going to choose almost everybody's going to choose to be a customer of such agencies is that they don't want to be in that situation. They want to make sure that there is somebody on their side who has an incentive to make sure that they get a fair trial and reasonable punishment and so forth. So instead of relying on protection, you, you shop around. Hmm. Okay. I mean, this is ever since I came across, I mean, and this is where my sympathies for, uh, specifically for anarcho-capitalism and obviously I mentioned the Hoppian thing at the start but ever since someone said to me when you start viewing your nation as a customer everything changes because if you were paying you know you see broken sidewalks pot, especially where I live potholes everywhere which are ruining you know my car which I've privately paid for you begin to assess well hang on as soon as the profit motive is removed any emphasis for, for a reason to do many many things is, is gone there's there's going back to science fiction stories. There's a science fiction book called Oath of Fealty mm. by Niven and Purnell, which is it's quite interesting. Uh, but in a sense, it cuts both ways on the anarchist issue. Uh, the the assumption is this is in the not very distant future, and some chunk of Los Angeles has gotten destroyed by a riot, and a international firm builds essentially a single building, small city, mm -hmm. uh, an arcology. And they have contracted somehow with the city, state, and federal government in such a way that it is functioning as if we're an independent country, presumably paying some level of tribute to the governments around it. Uh, the result is that it treats its tenants as customers. Mm -hmm. The tenants, after all, could leave and live in the outside world. So when it's equivalent of police uh, of a policeman finds somebody drunk, they don't arrest him. They help him find his apartment and get him back to it and get him put to bed. Mm -hmm. uh, but the 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 part which is which, which raises issues as to whether my vision would work is that in the story there is a conflict between the arcology and the surrounding city. Mm -hmm. That what happens is that some uh, sort of, I suppose, roughly college student age or maybe a little older than that, uh, people who disapprove of the archaeology for sort of uh, environmentalist kind of reasons. It's never clear whether that that's a very good case, but that's assumed. Stage a fake terrorist raid. Mm -hmm. They arrange uh, to cleverly to get through its security in order to get to some place where there is hydrogen coming in, which is used as its power source with what look like dynamite or bombs or something in such a way that if it was real, it would kill large numbers of people and do a whole lot of damage. The person who is running the arcology at this point, who's sort of the deputy head because the director is off somewhere, tries to stop them in various ways. And the last ditch defense is lethal. 
Mm -hmm. It's a lethal gas that is released. So the fake terrorists die. Mm -hmm. One of them is the daughter of a high up LA politician. Mm -hmm. Uh, The LA police uh, basically charge him with murder and arrest him. And the story, as I remember, is told from the standpoint of a reporter who is talking to the director, who is now back, of course, trying to deal with this. And the direct and, and the and the reporter says, uh, "If you let me in on the story, I won't tell. What won't you tell? That you're going to break him out of jail, which is correct. Mm-hmm. And the point is that from the standpoint of everybody in the arcology, this is not a miscarriage of justice." This is the seizure of one of their people by enemies. Mm -hmm. This is an act of war, as it were, by the city of Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And the point of the title, Oath of Fielding, is that because the arcology has taken the role, as it were, normally taken by a government, it has also attracted the same emotions. Mm -hmm. That the people in in the arcology don't think of themselves as citizens of Los Angeles. They think of themselves as citizens of Todos Santos, I think is the name of the arcology, the, the Angelinos are, from their standpoint, aliens who have just seized one of their people who was defending them against an unreasonable attack. Mm-hmm. And therefore, they are going to find a way uh, of, of breaking him out and getting him safely away from, from everything. Uh, so I think that it's a neat story because on the one, one half of it is the point that because Toto Santos is a business and not a government, it has to treat its customers well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the other half is because it's a business which is filling what people are used to seeing as the role of a government is going to attract the same kind of emotions uh, that a government attracts. So it's in general, I, uh, Niven was one of the best, uh, I guess he's still alive, I think, one of the best idea people in, in modern science fiction. And, and Purnell is a very good storyteller, was. Mm-hmm. He's no longer alive, unfortunately. Uh, and I thought it was really a neat story. I'm assuming you're, you'd put Heinlein at the top of those though? Uh, maybe, yeah. Heinlein certainly would be very high up on, on that particular list. Uh, and, but, you know, yeah, I suppose probably, he, he probably counts even above Niven, but he, he hasn't been around for a while, unfortunately. You know, that, that's really at root, that sort of discussion of the difference between, a you know, as you say, a government's, the difference between a government's and a business's fealty and the, the notion of a profit motive. And I, you know, I always think in terms of the NHS, why it's, <clears throat> as a Brit, one of the rare Brits who will say, I don't like the NHS because everything, as soon as you don't have that motive, uh, mm. nothing works. But of course, people get up in arms about that. But there you go. Um, I mean, there's a there's a there's a few there's one one question I was really intrigued to to ask you because I haven't actually seen this brought up um, by by sort of a prominent libertarian before. Um, I'm sure you're aware of Marx Marx's five stages of society so primitive imperial feudal capital and then he believes believed that eventually capitalism will turn into communism and if we take sort of anarcho-capitalism as the absolute sort of uh you know peak intensity of what capitalism can be you know that is real capitalism being tried in what way do you do you ever think i'm imagining you don't that marx's theory would come true and if it was to come true, in what way do you think libertarianism or monarcho-capitalism would have to be almost bastardized for it to turn into communism? The, 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 the British author, science fiction author you ought to be reading if you aren't is Ken McLeod. 
Mm-hmm. He's Scottish, actually, not English. And Ken McLeod, he's not a very good science fiction writer. He's not bad, but he's certainly not one of the top people. But he is somebody who is interested in sort of both left-wing and libertarian ideas. I think he considered himself a Trotskyite. But in one of his novels, in the sort of hall of the communist stateless society, there is a gold statue of, of Ludwig von Mises. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I no longer remember his explanation of why, but the sort of he he plays with ideas across that spectrum, as it were. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's in some of his stuff, he is imagining, as some other people have imagined, a society where sure everything is free mm-hmm. uh, and and problems with it. But I guess from my standpoint, uh, drinking water is free in the U.S. at present. Uh, that is to say, if all you want to do is to go to a fountain in a store, nobody will stop you from doing it or try to charge you from it. for it. Uh, all sorts of information is free online. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't seem to me that you're really, let me put it differently. There is a sense in which we are already in a post-scarcity society. The estimate of economic historians, it, well, let's go back a step. Suppose incomes in, in in countries like the U.S. or Britain were th- went up thirtyfold. Mm-hmm. All right. So if the current, I don't know what it is, but suppose the current average income was fifty thousand mm-hmm. dollars. Suppose it went up to a million and a half a year. Mm-hmm. Would you see that as a post scarcity society? So prices stay the same, so everybody can afford all of the things they want easily. To a degree, but I'd start to worry. But the point I wanted to make (laughs) is we're there already because the current real income in the developed world is 20 to 30 times what the average global was through most of history. Mm -hmm. And yet we don't feel as though we're in a public scarcity society. So I think the same thing is going to happen with the next 30 fold as well. That is to say- Why is that then? Do you think that we- we because, Because some things become very inexpensive, but I don't think there's really a limit to what people want. But there is a limit to, to resources. Well, I'm not sure what sense that that, that is true. Uh, that is, there is a limited amount of aluminum in the earth, mm-hmm. uh, rather enormous amounts, as the very common mineral. Mm-hmm. But there isn't a limit to the number of good books that have been written. There isn't a limit to how much better people can design things, to how much better movies can become. Uh, there isn't a limit as far as I know to how much better medicine could get. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so it seems to me it's pretty easy if you really think about it seriously to imagine a world where the average person is getting an income of more than a million dollars a year and there are still things that he wants and can't get. Okay, so it's a, for the problem with that post-scarcity society in, in your view then is that desires can continually sort of... Uh... There's an equilibrium of desire in relation to the an inflation of desire. In it's relation, not really an inflation. Not an inflation. Uh, uh, I, 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 there are things I currently desire. I, I currently desire to have my body go back to the state it was at age forty, and be able to stay there forever, at least for better forever. I might get bored, but for a very <laughs> long. Uh, so there are lots of things you think about it that you would desire that are not options at all. And as, this, as, as, as the society gets richer, they can, some of them can become options. Uh, I, I would like 
uh, to be able, well, let me take something very simple, something I could actually get if I really wanted to be extravagant. And that is that, that uh, what's it called? Something blue, one of, one of the airlines now has, if, if I want to fly to the UK as of September something, uh, Air Blue, that isn't quite right, whatever they are. Uh, oh, well, the, well, um, Jeff Bezos is. I don't know who it belongs to, but but I, I no, I, I just got a, a thing in the email from it. Okay. That's why I know. <laughs> and if I want to fly from New York to London, the round trip is about 500 and some dollars. But for about $1,600, I can do it in what looks to me like a little cubicle with, I think, a bed and all sorts of luxuries. And so it would be very nice. And, yeah, yeah. you know, uh, it's a little tempting. Uh, but there are lots of ways in which, it, as one got richer, the things you're used to having, the things you're used to barely affording become things, of course, you have. Uh, everybody has. And the things that you now know are unreasonably expensive become normal and the things that you now know are completely out of reach becomes maybe possible so you think sort of in in relation to let's say a hundred even just a hundred years ago what we define as poverty now then would have been uh, luxurious don't know about luxurious that's a little complicated because in some dimensions it would have been that is to say uh if a reasonably poor person can still have access to CDs of uh, music. And that gives him a greater range of musical options than anybody, I think that anybody would have had uh, a century ago. Well, make it a little more than a century ago. Uh, on the other hand, the, U, the US figure I think is that the median income around 1900 was about half of our present poverty level. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, uh, if you go back a little more than 100 years, uh, the average person was poorer than the poor people are now. But I wouldn't have said that somebody at poverty level, say at twice the median, would have been seen as living a luxurious life. They would have been comfortably well off. But, okay. Uh, uh, but anyway, no, but what is true, let me, let me go back a step. Mm -hmm. And that is... There are reasons why some things are property and some things are commons. I spend part of a chapter in my Law and Econ book, Law's Order, discussing that issue. That, uh, for example, you could imagine making the English language into private property via intellectual property law, mm -hmm. such that anytime anybody comes up with a new word, he owns a copyright on it. And other people can only use that word if they've licensed it from it. Mm -hmm. And there are some arguments for that because there are some, it would be nice to have some innovation. In particular, the English language does not have any gender neutral pronouns. There is, that is, there are neuter pronouns, it, but there is no pronoun you can use which leaves open the possibility of male or female. Mm -hmm. People use the instead, which is clumsy because it doesn't fit into the rest. It's a singular. It doesn't fit into the rest of the language because you end up saying the is instead of the are. They are. Mm -hmm. uh, so a, a, you can imagine an entrepreneur who hired some linguistics experts to figure out what would be the perfect pronoun that would seem natural to people, the way, the way Ms. developed spontaneously. All right. Ms., we didn't have a term for referring to a woman without specifying whether she was married or not. It was only Miss or Mrs. 
somehow the term Ms. developed to fill that gap. Mm -hmm. And you can imagine an entrepreneur who deliberately fills such gaps. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, if you had to uh, negotiate a license to use any word, it would be really hard to talk. Uh, so it makes more sense to do what we do, which is to treat language as a commons, uh, where nobody has a right to control it. Uh, well, there are other circumstances, other things make sense to be commons. Uh, I have a discussion in that chapter uh, about land in very primitive societies, because it turns out that uh, some primitive societies have private property land, it land and some don't. Mm -hmm. And you might say, well, the ones who don't are just too primitive to think of it. But in fact, there are primitive societies that have, land, have private property and land part of the year. Mm -hmm. And if you think about what's going on, whether it makes sense for land to be private property depends on how it's being used. Mm -hmm. That if you're using land to grow crops, there are big advantages to it being private property. Mm -hmm. If you're losing land to hunt large animals across, you don't really want to have to stop every time you get to somebody's boundary to get his permission to trespass while the deer is running away. Yeah. So it makes sense that in a society where what the land is used for is hunting, uh, it would often, you could imagine cases where you would want hunting preserves, but if you think about sort of the circumstances of a typical primitive society, it makes a lot more sense to say, well, maybe you will have private property in animals being pursued. You might have a legal rule as England common, English common law did have a, a legal rule uh, in which if I'm chasing a deer, you aren't entitled to shoot the deer, to see that I've chased the deer and you shoot it with your bow and you take it. Mm. Uh, I'm in hot pursuit. Uh, but you wouldn't want private property in the land we're hunting them over. Mm. So in general, what things are treated as private property and what is common that anybody can take is going to depend on the society and its technology. And I could certainly imagine future societies in which some of the things we're used to treating as private property became commons, and some of the things we're used to treating as commons might become private property. Uh, the, anyway, that's law and econ stuff, but, which is one of the things that I do. Uh, but, but I wouldn't think that is in effect the, the, the sort of beyond scarcity world, people are somehow imagining a world where everything is a commons. And I don't think that's at all plausible because I think there will always be things that are scarce. What, what, well, um, okay. So this scarcity question really interests me because I, I put the quote uh, in the questions actually specifically from Karl Menger, who's, you know, sort of the founder of Austrian econo economics, which is to paraphrase when there's no competition, when there's no scarcity, you, you don't need to have, that uh that barter system that that market system because yeah, that, 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 that's system. true but, but but it's true at the moment we don't have a barter system for air we don't have a barter system for rights mm -hmm. to use the english language we don't have a barter system for rights to use the idea of a supermarket or the idea of a shopping center there are mm -hmm. some ideas which we treat as property and some ideas we, which the patent law and some ideas we don't mm -hmm. uh any patented thing where the patent is expired is now in the commons Mm -hmm. So that there are indeed things that are not scarce and are not treated by private property. But the question is, is it plausible that you would have a world where nothing was? And it seems to me, I find it very hard to imagine such a world. Because the, is that because personal privacy would, would cease to sort of exist? No, it's, it, 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 it's, it, it's because first, I can't see a limit to what people want. And second, some of the things people want are inconsistent with each other. 
So that if what I want is to be taught something by a particular person and what he wants is not to teach me, mm-hmm. then we're going to have to have some bargaining over that in order to determine what he does. Okay. So there's always things. Yeah. Okay. So it's a limit to how we're defining scarcity. There are always going to be things which are scarce. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I mean, one of my sort of quotes that I go to in terms of, you know, it seems that almost the teleology of uh, anarcho-capitalism then is just to to continually develop a a way to fulfill needs, the increasing... Mm -hmm amount of needs from varying people which just increase 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 as we've spoken about in relation to the wages but, going but up it doesn't always have to be private property and trade that you can you know there are other there are other mechanisms uh to take one thing which is close to private property maybe it isn't quite the same a gift economy which mm-hmm. has certainly existed where instead of my saying what you will you sell that for to me for i give i do something for you Mm-hmm. And the implicit assumption is that if you're a good person, you will then do something for me. Mm-hmm. And I'm not, I don't very clearly understand why that exists, but it exists in our society. If you think about it, you have some friends over to dinner. Mm-hmm. They are likely to feel an obligation to have you over for dinner mm-hmm. or maybe to take you out to a restaurant. It would never occur to them that they should give you $20 instead. Hmm. All right. So that's a case where there's a gift economy built into our economy. I don't entirely understand why there is, but it's there. And there are other societies. There's the one of the societies I've read a good deal about is Saga period Iceland. And in Havamal, which is a bunch of good advice from Odin, there is the line, no man is so wealthy that he objects to receiving a gift in exchange for his gift. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they know about what they're doing too, and there's, and there's you know generosity. There, there, there are you could certainly imagine a society in which some people, some of these people who instead of getting a million and a half a year are getting twenty million a year, decide to spend some of that on setting up a free restaurant because they think, uh, wouldn't it be nice if everybody could have the kind of food I like and it doesn't cost me very much and so forth. So, so what things are scarce is going to vary. And as society gets richer, some of the things we're used to not being scarce, to being scarce, don't, aren't scarce. But I, as I, say, I find it hard to imagine a society where nothing is scarce. Okay. I mean, in what sense, uh, when you say you don't understand why there's a gift economy, in what sense do you think everything should be sort of flattened to that, the level of monetary there, there, There's no should. There's no should. I, I'm saying I do not understand what is the reason that it feels wrong to me to repay your dinner invitation with money and i know it would feel wrong to you and that is an observed pattern of human behavior and it's not a pattern i clearly understand well i guess the the gift economy seems to be in relation to sort of uh you it sounds very cheap but you can't put a price on friendship right that's a a a level of interrelationship why can but why can i put why can i put the price of a dinner on why can i put the price of my having to have you over for dinner for 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 on friendship yeah i mean if you made me steak but then made another friend a salad you you are putting a price on it in a certain sense right okay i mean that's an interesting question that is an interesting question the world is full of interesting questions what what would why do you think that is then i mean have you ever thought about why i don't know yeah i don't know the answer to that one (laughs) i just know that it's a pattern of behavior that i observe more in some societies as far as i can tell the saga icelandic society was pretty normal that at least if you if you read the sagas what seems to be happening 
is that people give gifts to other people with the understanding that you will have a reciprocal uh, gift that mm -hmm. uh, somebody lands on Iceland in the fall, uh, a trader or somebody from Norway, he finds one of the local uh, people, farm, big farm, farmer who has, you know, lots of land and stuff. He gives him a bunch of stuff he's got with him and the farmer invites him to spend the winter because he's not going to be able to get back to Norway before the weather gets too bad. Uh, and that sort of is an understood pattern. Uh, mm -hmm. Now, it's quite likely that if at some point thereafter there is some conflict and people are fighting, that he would, that the Norwegian will join with his Icelandic host to fight whoever his opponents are. Uh, so it goes with lots of other stuff. But anyway, it's... Uh, but my, my point is only that I don't think, that I think it's a mistake to imagine that a libertarian or an anarchist society consists entirely of people paying money to each other. Mm -hmm. uh, and that in such a society as any society, some people will do things just to be nice. Some things will do things with an implicit exchange, but not an explicit exchange. Uh, there are lots of other of other structures, but but money is a very convenient institution. It's uh, especially useful for dealing with strangers where you can't count on their giving you a gift in return. Uh, so, I mean, one, one, one sort of really interesting question, and it's sort of in relation to that. I mean, if we think about uh, Marxism, then the, the, the goal of Marxism is eventually to become this sort of collective people who are, you know, seizing the means of production and working as a collective state. Feudalism or monarchism, you are... Well, the you're goal under, of Marxism is supposed to be the communist society that you eventually get. Right? Yeah. Uh, so monarchism, you're underneath the king who's in connection to God, so you're all sort of working to God, at least in an absolute monarchy. Um, and I'm sure you could find other, other examples under other systems. In, in, under a libertarian or an anarcho-capitalist together society, is, is the meaning of that uh, environment, that society, purely a, an individual subjective meaning? Is there, a, is there any um, teleology which is... That's you know, going to depend on the society. You could, you could imagine an anarcho-capitalist society which came into existence because of a religion. Mm -hmm. uh, you could imagine one which came into existence because of libertarian ideology, but you could also imagine one where some of the people think it's good for one thing and some for another, but, but they're all, you know, functioning in that society and achieving their individual ends. So, so I don't think that, that it's just as I, I, I want to distinguish between anarchy and libertarianism. I would want to distinguish between anarchy and whatever particular uh, beliefs, feelings, ideologies, religions happen to exist in this anarchist society, because mm -hmm. I don't think there's only one possible one. Okay, okay. So in that connection, though, of anarchy and capitalism, of course, anarchy, you know, not bowing down to the state, not paying taxes, not being controlled by the state. In what way do you then, if, if you're an anarchist, stop yourself from being controlled by corporation, you know, by... by uh, so how does that not turn into a, a controlling, almost state force for you? Is it simply because, because all, you have the choice? All the corporation can do is make you offers that you can refuse, mm -hmm. just like everybody else can do. Mm -hmm. In what sense you control? And there's a certain sense in which you're controlled by lots of people that I've been reading and rereading a long uh, science fiction series by one of my favorite authors. Mm -hmm. She controls whether she writes another book in that series. Mm -hmm. 
All right. Well, I really don't. I really wanted to write another book. I want to find out <laughs> what happens to the characters. I mean, I've read whatever 20 books or some, some number like that. This is the Foreigner series by C.J. Cherry, which is very good. Uh, and there, I, I want another five or 10. I'm, I'm just worried that Cherry is pretty old and she may not last that long. Uh, but in that sense, she controls me. She can absolutely keep me from reading the next book by not writing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's the only sense in which a, a, a corporation controls me. The corporation controls me in the sense that it can choose not to produce something I want to buy. It can choose to produce something I want to buy at a high price, and then I either don't get it or I pay their price. If I'm an employee of a corporation, it can say, well, you will we'll only pay you a salary on the following terms. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, we're always controlled by people around us. Uh, the alternative would be to be a slave owner who owned everybody. And that's not really a practical option. Okay. Uh, okay. I mean, right, right at the beginning, uh, I mentioned my uh, sympathies for um, the work of Hans Hermann Hopper and Hoppian uh, uh, libertarian. The only thing of Hoppe I've looked at all closely is his claim to have a proof of libertarianism via the argument, uh, the argument thing. And that, as far as I know, is complete nonsense. And I spend a page or two in Liberty Magazine many years ago dissecting it. Uh, and that left me with a low opinion of Hoppe. But I have not really read his other stuff. My impression is that he is somebody more sympathetic with sort of conservative and even authoritarian style ideas than most libertarians are, although he wants to implement them within some sense of libertarian framework. Okay. Uh, okay. So I guess the overarching question for me from there would be, is it that you could eventually have a light, uh, uh, a left or right libertarianism, but you'd have to begin from the choice, from you know, pure libertarianism. That is, then- you, could, you could certainly end up with a libertarian society in which there were individual communities mm-hmm. within which uh, everybody had to pray to Allah four times a day. Mm-hmm. And joining that community involved agreeing to do that. And if you didn't do that, they were entitled to throw you out. Mm-hmm. Ditto, you could have it for any of a variety of other things. Uh, that particular one isn't very likely since traditional Islam allowed non-Muslims to be part of their community. Uh, but you could certainly imagine a community with very conservative standards of things like drug use and sex and law and marriage and child rearing and so forth uh, within a libertarian uh, or an anarchist society, uh, as long as people can, can leave if they don't, if they don't, if they don't want to be part of that. Uh, so that that I don't see as a problem. On the other hand, my impression is that what I don't know, I don't know about Hoppy, but I have a feeling that he's he's trying to push pretty far in the direction of doing things that restrict other people as well as the people who agreed to them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. That's I mean, I mean, I, I would you know just to push the devil's advocate position to its absolute limit. Eventually. You know, libertarian society has gone on for years and years and years, hundreds of years, and you end up with all these microstates or even policies, which, you know, everyone who's entered them is agreement. People are born into them and maybe they eventually go, oh, I don't like this one. What happens? And I understand this is a very pedantic question. What happens if you're born and there's a let's just say on the globe, there is a thousand libertarian communities. They own all the land. Yep. But you don't agree. You There's none really, which of luck. But I mean, that's I mean, that. I will admit to my, what, you know, what, I'm, what, I'm, what what happens if I'm born into the world as I have been, and I really want a 21st uh, foreigner novel from Cherry, and she decides not to write it. Tough luck. Yeah. 
But I mean, uh, so that's the, the the thing that people often use to describe. But I'm, but really, I'm not a utopian. We're born into I'm that not world a utopian. I don't believe you can get a, a world which everybody always gets everything they want, mm. uh, or even everything they should want in any sense. Uh, so no, all I all I claim is that I think the anarcho-capitalist society, if it, it if it functions, is more attractive than the alternatives. That's mm. all I'm willing to claim. Okay. You know, the alternatives are. What do you think? What do you think um, in terms of anarcho-capitalism? What do you think the thing is that people often overlook? Or do you think it's completely mis misrepresented? Well, a lot of people, it's a little unfair because I'm, I'm really thinking in terms of my particular version of anarcho-capitalism, mm -hmm. and I can't claim that that covers all possible versions because it doesn't. Uh, but a lot of people seem to think that if you don't agree to a law against murder, then you can kill people. Mm -hmm. uh, they somehow imagine that you can have your own they, they, you can have a rights enforcement agency and it can do whatever it likes. And it's ignoring the fact that in order to do whatever it likes, it's going to have to have contract with all the other rights enforcement agencies so that they don't end up shooting at its people when it tries to do things they disapprove of. Uh, so I think there's a generally a tendency not to, not to see uh, the way in which it's, in, in which it's constrained by the fact that there are other people in the world and you're interacting with them as well. Uh, other than that, that is a, a disagreement, but not, not a mistake because it's, it's a different views of anarcho-capitalism. And that is that as far as I can tell, Rothbard's view was that there would be a single legal system. There would be private courts, but a single legal system for the whole society deduced by libertarian philosophers, as far as I can tell. And as far as I can see, he never gave any good reason to expect that courts would actually follow such a thing, uh, especially if you look at how wide the range of different things the different libertarian philosophers have concluded is, that Ayn Rand and Murray Rothbard did not agree on everything, for example, and neither of them would agree with, on everything with Hoppe. Hmm. Uh, so, so I think he did not see, as far as we know, he didn't understand my argument I never had this argument with him. I'm judging by stuff he's written. Mm -hmm. uh, I've, I've interacted with Rothbard, but not very much in the past. Uh, and maybe didn't see the problem of how do you make it in people's interest, in, in the interest of the people who are running the courts and the equivalent of the police and such to respect libertarian law. And that's a, a real problem. And I claim at least that a competitive legal system comes as close as you can to, to solving it. Uh, so... But, but beyond that, I don't know. I, I guess uh, I think the idea that somebody, everybody has, gets to have his own law is probably the most serious mistake in that. And people who, who, who say that obviously see it isn't workable and therefore think anarcho-capitalism isn't workable. And that's sort of and the, the, the other argument one gets, and it's, it's, it, it, it's it, I wouldn't call it a mistake, and a misunderstanding might be disagreement, is the claim that if you do have rights enforcement agencies acting this way, they're really governments and not thinking about what is, and it, it's, it's not obvious what the defining characteristics of the government are. Okay. All right? Because you might say, well, it gets to violate rights, but of course a thief gets to violate rights too. Uh, well, it legally gets to, to violate rights, but what does legally mean? After all, the thief could declare his own law if he mm -hmm. don't like it. Uh, and I have an answer, which I spend a good deal of a chapter in the third edition of Machinery and Freedom on, and I've 
was a published article long before that, which is basically that in any human society, there is a network of commitment strategies such that there are some things that you can try to do to me, which I will resist with unreasonably large, at unreasonably large costs. Mm-hmm. And that everybody sort of knows about them so that there are lines, the sort of invisible lines in the social world, as it were, where you know that if you cross that line with regard to somebody, his willingness to resist will be more than the actual amount at stake. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I go through that in some detail and people can look at the third edition of machinery if they're curious. Uh, and what's special about a government is that people drop their commitment strategies against the government. So if a private individual says to you, uh, give me your money or I will use force against you. If he's got enough force, you may give him your money, but you will, you, you usually, you won't unless he has enough force. So if you're, if you're in a situation where in effect, uh, somebody says, give me a hundred dollars or, uh, and resisting this will cost you $150. You will in fact resist it. Mm-hmm. If the government says that you won't. So that I think the defining, the term I used in the first edition, when I haven't thought this through as carefully as I have since, is legitimized coercion. Mm-hmm. Where what I mean by coercion is whatever things, whatever whatever sorts of things are thought of in that society as being rights violations in terms of how you would respond to other people doing them. And by legitimized, I mean not that it is morally legitimate or even that you believe it's morally legitimate, but that you act as if it's morally legitimate that you don't resist government collecting taxes in this way in, or, or the government enslaving you for jury duty in the way in which you could resist, would resist somebody else doing the same things. Okay. So that's the closest I can come. But, but it, it's certainly true that in the anarcho-capitalist society, I imagine there are courts, there are equivalents of police, there are, thing, there, there are laws. So that makes some people say it's not anarchy. And... Do you, do, you see, do you see us heading that way organically or do you think something will need? No, to I don't know what's going to happen in the future. I think the world is usually moving in all directions at once. Is there yeah. anywhere on, on the world, you know, any nations in the world at the moment who you look towards and think that that's, as, you know, the closest we've got, Singapore or somewhere along these lines? <laughs> no, Singapore is free in some respects, but not unfree in others. Uh, and I think that's true of, uh, of every place uh, that... So, so no, I don't think, you know, there, we, we may end up with uh, maybe Estonia will turn out to do a libertarian society. It's, it's looking pretty good at this point. Uh, maybe, uh, no, they, one of the positive things is the development of essentially private states within states. These are the new cities projects. Uh, the idea being, look how successful Hong Kong was. Could you do something like that? And there's, it looks as though that's happening in Honduras, which is one of the places where people were pushing that pretty early uh, and it may succeed. Uh, So you might have a situation where there is in effect a competitive market for law, not in my form, but in a geographical form where you can say there are a whole bunch of places which will let practically anybody in uh, and they are competing with each other for customers, for citizens. Uh, and that's always, to some extent, been the case. There's—I uh, don't know if you read Parkinson, C. Northcott Parkinson. 
No. He was British, although he largely lived in, in uh, I think, in Singapore, actually. He was a British political scientist who was very good at making serious points in humorous essays. <laughs> and he's most famous for Parkinson's Law. Uh -huh. Parkinson's Law has two, has two versions, two statements of the law. One of them is work expands to fill the time available. And the other is the number of people employed by a bureaucracy increases at a constant rate, independent of whether the work to be done increases, decreases, or any work at all. <laughs> and it sounds sort of like a joke, but then he gives you his data. Mm -hmm. And he has figures for the British colonial office mm -hmm. during the time when the British Empire was vanishing and the number of employees continued to grow. And he has figures for the onshore establishment of the British Navy during the time when England went from the greatest naval power in the world to barely able to beat Argentina. Mm. And it, at least over the time he looks at it, the numbers continue to grow. But he has another one of his essays where he's discussing, uh, among other things, tax rates. Mm -hmm. And his comment there is that they're constrained by the threat of immigration. That the way he puts it is the productive, he was optimistic on the numbers, I should say, but the productive people of the world have discovered by long and bitter experience that they will usually have to pay about 10% of their income to some gangster feudal lord or Department of Internal Revenue. It matters little what you call it. Mm -hmm. When the rates get higher than that, the Israelites start looking at the Atlas. There are probably better places to be than Egypt. Hmm. Uh, and as I say, his 10% was optimistic, but the point that even in the present world, that's one of the things that constrains governments, that the state of California is run very badly. And this is the first year in its history when its population has gone down, mm -hmm. as of the latest census. Uh, it, it lost one congressional seat as a result. Huh. Oh, it's losing one congressional seat. Uh, so, so there is some element of constraint of, of both national and local governments through immigration. And if the New Cities projects do well enough, that constraint will be a good deal larger. There will be, at the moment, there are probably two countries where I could claim citizenship if I wanted to. Uh, Israel, because I'm Jewish, and Hungary, because Hungary apparently has taken the position that it is the successor state to the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And that the descendants of people who lived in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, therefore, can claim Hungarian citizenship. And I am told that there is good evidence for, I think, my, probably my maternal grandmother living in a particular town in what is now the Ukraine, but was then part of Austro-Hungary, uh, maybe part of the, maybe part of the king, kingdom of Hungary within Austro-Hungary. I'm not sure, and therefore my my elder son researched this, and and it, according to his information, if I really wanted to, I could claim citizenship in either of those countries, and if things got bad enough in the U.S., I would. Uh, are you, like are you thinking about doing it? No, not not unless not unless they solve the aging problem. I don't think it is likely that things will get bad enough in the U.S in my lifetime for me to want to do that. But I've certainly have thought about the idea for that reason. You, uh, you see aging as a problem? Yes, of course I see aging as a problem. Is it not, is it not just a inevitability? Well, it doesn't so have far. to be. It doesn't have to be. Yeah. Right. Oh. For humans, it is. It isn't for amoebas. <laughs> there are no young amoebas. Okay. Wow. Are you? Uh, is that sort of... 
uh, you're uh, something you're really interested in, like uh, life extension sort of technologies. Sure. That is to say, not that I, it's not what I do for my, do professionally, but it's certainly, I am interested in it in a bunch of different ways, partly in the thinking about the effects on the society. I spend part of a chapter in my book, Future Imperfect, on trying to imagine what happens if you end aging. And uh, I'm currently old enough, so it is already the case that I can no longer learn poetry easily. I've actually got to make a noticeable effort to memorize a poem, which wasn't true 40 years ago. Uh, my knees hurt when I go up the stairs. Uh, I have various other minor defects of my body. It still functions pretty well. Uh, I stopped doing sword and shield fighting about five years ago uh, due to aging. Uh, so yes, I would. I, as I say, I I would be satisfied if they just stopped me age my aging now. But I would much rather if they could push it back a couple of decades. Mm, okay. Okay. What 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 happens in if if we were to stop aging, that's an interesting question. The some people would say there will be a terrible population problem, mm-hmm. and they're probably wrong because I think they greatly overestimate how constrained we are by by limited resources. That people tend to vastly overestimate how dense populations are because the only places people see are the ones where there are people, mm-hmm. uh, and. If you actually sort of work out the arithmetic, uh, a long, very long time ago when people were worried about population, when that was the big issue, which nowadays is global warming. Uh, and I worked, I calculated population density for countries of the world, just people per square mile. Mm-hmm. And it turned out that at the time of the five most densely populated countries in the world, two of them were rich European countries. Belgium and the Netherlands, and three of them, yes, three of them, I think, were countries in the process of becoming rich, Uh, those being, I think, Taiwan, uh, Korea, and Singapore, if I remember correctly. Mm -hmm. Uh, The most most densely populated polity was Hong Kong, but it wasn't an independent country at the time, so I didn't count it. Singapore had a much higher population density than any other country, and Hong Kong had 10 times the population density of Singapore. Mm -hmm. And between then and now, the per capita income in in Hong Kong has passed that of Britain. Mm -hmm. Uh, So so I think people, on the other hand, the critical question there is whether people keep having babies or not. That if all that happens is that each new generation has about as many kids as they did before, but then once you have had your family, you've done that and you can entertain yourself with your grandchildren and so forth, then you just get a linear population growth because people aren't dying of old age anymore. Mm-hmm. If people say, all right, I had one family, that was fun, let's have another, let's have another, let's have another, then you get an exponential population growth and that might actually uh, get beyond the carrying capacity of the planet in you know few centuries. Uh, But that problem aside, the more interesting thing, there are two really interesting issues there. One of them is what you would do with your life. Suppose you you thought it likely that you would live for several hundred years. Obviously, you can still get struck by lightning or something, but uh, how would that change your life? So that one possibility at one extreme, you can say, well, you work very hard up to about age 50, accumulate enough money to live on, and then take a life of leisure for the next two centuries. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Another possibility say, no, I don't like working very hard. I don't like saving money. I never saved money before. I'm just going to do the same thing for 200 years, basically, or 300 years. Uh, 
In between that, the one that I find attractive is you accumulate enough money in the early part so you don't really have to work. You can live at a tolerable standard of living without working, and then you only do work you like. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that strikes me as a as an attractive compromise. But there are lots of other decisions. Do you stay married to the same person for 250 years? Do you take vacations from your marriage? Do you say, well, it was very nice, but you know, 50 years is long enough to be married. Let's amicably separate and go try again. Uh, do you, what about the, what it feels? Suppose you've been a pr- productive person in some field. You've been a successful lawyer. Do you say at age 100, you know, I'm really bored with being a lawyer. It's true. I make better money. I think I'm going to go to medical school uh, or write a novel. Or mm-hmm. So those are the other, there are a bunch of interesting things, questions for people. For the, uh, the increased uh, life, like if the, the higher you increase life expectancy, the less meaning your life has though, right? Because I don't think so. Well, what I mean is, the more constrained, you know, if you've only got 70 years, we're on, well, we're, well, okay, on average on the Westerners, we've got 80 now. If you, if someone says they spent 50 of them, you know, say, studying Austrian economics, that's impressive because yeah. they've made that sacrifice. But if you live 500 years, it's not, it no longer becomes as much of a sacrifice. No, it's, it was still 50 years you spent doing it. <laughs> uh, the, but uh, I don't believe in the labor theory of value. Uh, the, so I don't think that how important it is depends on how much of your life you spent doing it. Uh, the uh, Ronald Coase got a Nobel Prize for basically two articles. The fundamental insight of those articles appears in a talk he gave when he was in, I think, his early 20s. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, that was the big breakthrough. Uh, and that was, uh, in a sense, why... It seemed one of the reasons he was entitled to die happy, to feel satisfied. So I don't think it depends on how long, how long it goes. But but the other the other end of that is the effects on the society. For example, it has been argued that scientific progress doesn't consist of convincing people; it consists of old scientists dying and young scientists having new ideas. So you might get a more static intellectual world without that. In a world without aging, Stalin might have continued to run the Soviet Union uh, and uh, Franco would still be ruler of Spain and so forth. So you might get more stable dictatorships than we now have, which would be a bad thing. So you can think of a number of different things. I've seen the argument. Part of it also depends on how much of the current characteristics of the old are biological and how much are the result of having lived. So Mm -hmm. if you say old people tend to be cautious, they tend to be in some sense conservative, a bunch of things of those sorts. Well, is that only because of the biological effects of age or is that just the effect of having lived a long life? And if it's the effect of having lived a long life, you'll have a world where everybody is like that. Uh, So anyway, uh, but there are a bunch of other questions. Uh, For example, in that world, do you tell people how old you are? Assuming we really have control of it, can a 150-year-old man go back to college and flirt with the 80, with the 20-year-old college girls and be treated as if he's one of their peers while he has the enormous advantage of his experience? Or do we assume that it's public information or that people don't want it to? Anyway, a bunch of interesting questions, most of which have probably been explored in science fiction by somebody, although I can't think of particularly good examples. Uh, 
Wow. Okay. Okay. Um. So, what are you what are you working on at the moment? Just these uh, volumes of the blog posts. Yeah, what I'm working on the, the the section I'm working on at the moment is economics, mm-hmm. and that's going to be a very large section as it's turning out. Not surprisingly, I've already put up the drafts of the first few sections. Uh, if you go to my website, which is daviddfriedman.com, uh, if you hunt down it, I've got the the uh, a link to the drafts of the section on libertarianism is written. The rather short section on religion is written. Uh, and I think at this point, the section on sort of marriage, children and stuff like that, child rearing and such is, is written. Uh, I have to go look at it and make sure exactly what I've, what I've got got done at this point. And those are up and people can read them. Is that the best and, place to purchase your work as well? Well, that one isn't. Basically, if you, some of my work you can read for free from my webpage. And stuff you purchase, you can purchase on Amazon. It's the simplest way of doing it. And all but one of my books, all of my books at this point, I, I think all of my books are Kindles at this point, mm-hmm. as well as print. And all but one of my books are also audiobooks. Mm-hmm. Uh, the I didn't do an audiobook of my price theory textbook because it's really hard to do an audiobook of something with graphs and stuff in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but all my other books I've done as audiobooks, almost all of them by me. My second novel, somebody else read as an audiobook, and I thought I did a very good job of it. Uh, and but of the libertarian, oh, yeah, med- education. I'm wrong, I've done. Yes, I think I put up my chapters on education uh, and I've put up my chapters on religion and my chapters on libertarianism. And but it'll be a while before I put up my chapters on economics because there are going to be a lot of them. That is, I've written the first few of them uh, and that's it. Uh, Something else I just I came across in the process of this are that two of my talks from about 40 years ago have, have, have web videos that somebody has put up. Wow. Uh, and one of them is a debate with George Smith on whether economics or philosophy is the proper basis for libertarianism. Mm-hmm. And one is a talk I gave on problems with libertarianism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those are both from, I think about 1981. And I also came across a recording of the first part of a debate I had with an American leftist back in, I think, 79. <laughs> uh, that's not a video. It's just an audio recording. And all of those were sort of fun, almost time machine effect and seeing how much you, there are the, 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 the debate and maybe the talk uh, in addition to me and the person I'm arguing with there are several other people I knew who were in that, and I think all of them are still alive. Uh, and that's sort of neat, just sort of seeing seeing them and coming pushing back forty years. Perhaps you so, should uh, redo the debate now. See what's changed. Yeah, unfortunately, I haven't been able to get in touch with George. I actually, I want part of the reason I'm looking at this is I want to put some of this stuff in the in the current book, mm-hmm. uh, and both links to the to the recordings, but also I've been uh, taking it as text as well. And I would like to have the debate with George up as text. And I've gone, I, I, I've done a speech to text thing using software, which isn't very good, and then gone through and cleaned up my version. 
-hmm. And I would like to get George to clean up his version and to get his permission to put both of them in the book, but I haven't been able to get in touch with him. That is to say, I've got a phone number that never gets answered. He's got a Facebook page he pays no attention to. I gather <laughs> health problems uh, and he's a long way away. So I can't walk to his front door and say hello. Uh, so, uh, so I may or may not be able to do that. I'm not sure. I may end up just having my half of the debate and then for his half pointing people at the video at the, time for each chunk of it uh we'll see i see is okay. there um anything you'd like to add about your work or machinery of freedom that you feel uh we might well let's over? see i put up my books as kindles at a very low price because i'm writing mainly hard to get people to read stuff not mainly as an income source mm -hmm. so i think the third edition of machinery is something like five dollars mm -hmm. as a kindle I don't swear it's exactly that also i have written three novels uh, one of them was commercially published and two of them I self-published. And I think, I think they're worth reading. I think there are clearly novelists who are better than I am. Uh, on the other hand, my novels are in some ways different from other people's novels. So I think there will be some people who will like them better than the competition. I like them on the whole. Uh, the first and second are very different. The first one it was, it was marketed as a fantasy, but what it really is a historical novel with made up history. That is to say, I'm, I, all the people are humans. There are no elves and dwarves. There's no magic, although there's some suspicion of magic by some of the people. And uh, the, I've, re I've written my own, I, I've drawn my own map. I've, I've created societies that didn't actually exist, but they're based in various ways on historical societies. So in that sense, it's closer to a historical novel than to a fantasy. My second one is an actual fantasy. It's, it's got magic. It's got a science of magic, as it were. And it was a lot of fun because it's basically <coughs> sent uh, about 50 years after the magical equivalent of Newton. That is to say, you have a society which has had magic as a craft for hundreds of years. And about 50 years ago, someone started to figure out how it worked. Hmm. And that is still having its effects in, uh, at the point of the, of the story. So that, that I enjoyed. Uh, and one of the lessons which I learned to some extent from the first novel, but more from the second, is that no, no plot survives contact with the characters that once you've drawn your characters, they've got to do what they would do, not what you had planned for them to do. And that's sort of an interesting experience. I, I concluded on the first one even that world building feels more like discovery than invention. That is to say, you've invented a small chunk of a world. And then as it starts expanding in different directions, they've got to be consistent with, with the chunk you've done. And it feels almost as if you're sort of looking around and seeing things rather than just inventing out of a blank slate. Uh, but the second one, the plot ended up being quite sizably different than what I'd originally imagined. And the second one actually might be of interest to libertarians. Any kind. None, none of the books are really libertarian novels in the sense I'm not preaching libertarianism. They're all affected by the fact that I'm a libertarian and the fact that I'm an economist. And the second novel, the one which is actually a fantasy, is part of the idea is the magical equivalent of the central planning fallacy. That the central planning fallacy is the idea that there are all these resources out there. Mm -hmm. If only some sensible person had control of them, what wonderful things we could do. Hmm. And there are basically three mistakes in that. Mm -hmm. One mistake is forgetting those resources are already being used. 
mm-hmm. and that when the sensible person uses them for something, uh, that means you're going to have to stop all the things other people are already doing, which they have good reasons to do, presumably. Mm-hmm. The second is assuming that the problem of what to do with resources is much easier than it is. So that was really, in a sense, the Mises, et cetera, controversy over the calculation controversy. And the third mistake is assuming it'll be a good guy who's controlling it. Mm-hmm. And in my world, magic is very weak. Hmm. That a a fire mage is more like a match than a blowtorch. And a lot of the education in becoming a skilled mage is not just learning magic, but learning how to create large effects with small causes. Uh, And this is very frustrating. And so one of my, my male protagonists has come up with an idea He's a, he's a theorist. He's a sort of a first-rate theorist using the new, the new theories. He's come up with a way in which you can pull in the magical power of many, 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 many people, funnel it through one person, and finally do the sort of things Maj has always imagined being able to do. Mm-hmm. And he's a well-intentioned guy. He's a nice guy. Uh, and he's seeing this as, you know, you, you could stop a plague. His parents died of a plague, as you eventually discover. Uh, you could do various other good things. My female protagonist is an equally brilliant student at the college, and he tries to get her involved in helping with his project, and she refuses. Mm-hmm. And he says, but you don't understand. I mean, the world is a much harder place than you, than you realize. There are terrible things to be stopping. Oh, I understand. My mother is a healing mage. I have seen gaping wounds that she has closed. And when you have taken her power to end a plague or, or stop a flood, on whose hands is the blood of those she cannot heal. Mm-hmm. And, and it then turns out eventually that the colleague of his who's collaborating with him has his own ideas of what to do mm-hmm. with it. So that's the second. I never really get into the, 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 the calculation controversy problem that doesn't come up in it, but the two of the reasons do come up. And that was part of the motive for the story, essentially. To okay. Is that, is that going to become a, become a series or is that just a single? It has a sequel. The sequel is not really about those issues. Sequel is I'm reasonably happy with, but, but I'm not as happy with the third with that as the, as the first one. The, the sequel is happening a couple of years later with some of the, many of the same characters involved, but it's mostly about other things. And I suppose in a way, one of the things the first novel was about, the one that was really a historical novel, was the tension between two ways of looking at human societies, one being in terms of an organization chart, a hierarchy, and one is a network of relationships. Mm-hmm. So in the first novel, you have a kingdom which is has on its northern border a very powerful expansionary empire, which has been trying to conquer it. The kingdom has been holding it off by an alliance with a semi-stateless society adjacent to it and a military order mostly inside the kingdom and independent of it. And they've managed barely to, to, to sort of fight off the invasion successfully for about 30 years. The king dies. His son believe, has, the, has the very natural point of view of what matters is who's in allegiance to me. Mm-hmm. It's a hierarchy, a table of organization. How can I fight them off if two-thirds of my army consists of people I have no control over? Mm-hmm. His father's allies. 
So he therefore tries to get control over them. And that messes things up very badly. And my protagonist is the leading figure in the semi-stateless society, who for most of those 30 years was the alliance's general. That is to say, the previous king had enough sense to realize that his ally was a better general than he was. Uh, so you've had this sort of coalition that's been working and is then breaking down due to the to the young kings not understanding things. And, and my protagonists trying to fix that situation is what the novel is largely about. So the critical thing, and a critical thing, a critical idea never stated but implicit, is the idea of the king has a system of hierarchical relationships, uh, which he assumes he can rely on, but he's wrong. Whereas the, my protagonist has a set of person-to-person -person friendship relationships so that you have one of the characters who is the feudal lord of, at the level just below the king, of one of the largest and most powerful provinces, as it were. And the king sort of assumes he'll do what the, what the king tells him to. And in fact, it is very clear that he is in fact functioning as an ally of my protagonist. Uh, the protagonist's line at a point early on is uh, that he's very good at losing, very good at failing when he wants to. I can't see him hunting you with any success. He's very good at failing when he wants to. Uh, and 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 that sort of that sort of, of 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 interaction between personal relationships, as it were, and the third novel, which is the Caesar to the first, not to, to the second, not the first, is partly its title is Brothers, mm -hmm. and it's partly about how the relationships between pairs of people prevent problems that would otherwise occur in the society, mm -hmm. so that. It's starting, basically, the second novel, Salamander, ends with an unsuccessful attempt to seize power in a kingdom by a, well before either novel happens, there has been a succession struggle. The son of the prince who lost in that succession struggle tries to seize the throne with the help of uh, an invasion army from a, a polity north of them and fails and dies. Mm -hmm. His son ends up stranded in the polity that was, his, that was helping his father try to take the throne as a guest of that ruler's court. He's probably about 11 when this happens. And from the standpoint of that ruler, he's just a useful puppet. If we ever want a good excuse to invade them here, we've got somebody who can claim to be the rightful heir. Uh, he's about 13 or 14 at the point when the, when, when the third novel, when Brothers starts. And he, more or less by accident and the miscarriage of some plots, ends up in, his, in the kingdom his father tried to seize encountering his cousin, who is the son of the heir to the throne. They like each other very much. And they're very similar kinds of people, so to speak. They swear blood brotherhood. That means that the civil war that could have happened can't happen. I see. Because the civil war would have been between the people in the kingdom who had supported his father 
and the existing king and the existing king's brother and the existing king's brother's son, who is now his black brother. At the same time, one of the things that you're seeing in the background is that that kingdom is ruled by a king and his brother, who were the two princes who survived the succession struggle where the third prince got killed by them, more or less, or by their supporters. And those two brothers entirely trust each other. And that's part of the reason the kingdom works. Mm-hmm. And they, are, they have different talents. The king is, as it were, wiser and his brother smarter, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And that shows up in various things in the course of the, of the novel that I'm trying to illustrate. Uh, there are two other, there's, a, there's a, another pair of brothers who were on opposite sides of the earlier attempted civil war, but who trust each other. And then there's a brother-sister who, where the sister is the queen at the moment and the brother is the ruler of one of the, is, is the, the leading noble in one of the chunks of the kingdom. And in each case, the relationships between the people are largely what's driving what's ultimately happening. So insofar as there is a theme, that's why it's called Brothers. And I quote at the beginning of it, uh, an Icelandic saying, uh, bear is brotherless back. Uh, so, so that's in a sense what that one is at. So it's, it, 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 it's, I guess, may, maybe in a way more like the first than the second, than the second in terms of its theme, but it's set in the world of the second. And all of them, and, and the second and third, part of what I'm having fun with is trying to do a believable job of having a science of magic mm-hmm. so that I have sort of an explanation of, of, of the structure of magic which is basically inspired by the mathematical structure of quantum mechanics as it happens. <laughs> that isn't what it is, but that's what it's modeled on, as it were. And I couldn't really write the textbook because I only have the top layer, as it were. But I've got the top layer of a science so that I'm creating, I think, a reasonably plausible illusion that I really know how it works, that there really is a sort of worked out science under there where, where I have my male protagonist in the second book does an experiment, for example, at one point you can watch him doing the experiment and get some idea of how it's working and so forth. So anyway, so those were all fun. So I like my novels, but, but uh, I think my nonfiction work is in certain ways, some of the best stuff of its sort exists and my novels are not. My novels are, are good stories. I enjoyed writing them. I think some people enjoy reading them. But if I was telling people you only have one one novel to read, what should it be? It wouldn't be one of mine. Do you say your your nonfiction stuff is some of the best in terms of you know its genre or genre? I, I, the, the, I think yes. That is to say, I obviously I'm biased on the subject, but I think machinery or freedom does things in explaining libertarian ideas that nobody else has done. Uh, or does things better than other That's what I was going to ask. Is there anyone today who you consider is also doing things, you know, while I was writing? The, 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 the current libertarian intellectual I think most highly of is Mike Humer, mm-hmm. who is a philosopher. Uh, but I'm not sure what he's doing at the moment. But he has a book on the problem of political authority, of which the first half, <clears throat> which I've read, is going through all of the philosophical arguments to justify governments being able to do the sorts of things they do Mm -hmm. and does a pretty convincing job to me, though obviously I'm biased, of showing that none of them work. And his conclusion is that the only defensible argument is to say the alternatives all work worse. Hmm. 
And he then spends the second half defending essentially anarcho-capitalism. I didn't read that half because I already agree with that conclusion. <laughs> I probably should because he probably has a few arguments I haven't thought of because he's a very bright guy. Uh, but of, of presently writing sort of libertarian theorists, I think he's the one I think most highly of. But I also tend to, I don't read a lot. Uh, I, I tend to uh, think about things and argue with people and write them as opposed to reading large amounts of literature. Uh, there's a story about my friend Gordon Tullock, who was an economist no longer alive, who was a very original and unconventional person, one of the inventors of public choice theory. And there was some context, I don't remember what it was, where somebody, some prominent economist had written an article, and Tullock wrote an article attacking it. And the author of the first article said, uh, all of us have always been impressed by how much Professor Tullock has written. And it's even more impressive to realize that he has written so much when he can't read. Hmm. And then went on to claim that the attackers understood, his, understood the original article. And I wouldn't say I can't read, but I find it more interesting to think about things and talk about things with people and only occasionally to read other people's books, uh, other people's <laughs> works in my field, as it were. Okay. Okay. Um yeah, is there anything you'd like to, to add? Uh, here no, the... I don't think so. Uh, my my webpage has most of my published articles. You can read several of my books. You can read full text of, uh, and the, any books that aren't there, you can get off Amazon. Okay. Right. Uh, David Thank Freeman, you. thanks very much. <laughs>